Welcome to Augmented Humanity. Our guests are modern explorers working at the intersection of technology and the humanities. They help us to understand ourselves and the worlds we create in this digital age. They are thinkers, creators, makers, and academics working in diverse fields like civics and government, the law, anthropology, and archaeology. I'm your host, Craig Goldsmith. I'm your host, Ellen Dornan. On this program, we're joined by Daniel Latore, founder and director of The Wise City. Daniel is an advocate for digital placemaking with a focus on community engagement and for city leaders going beyond smart cities. Daniel, thank you so much for talking with us today about the next frontier in municipal governance. I wanted to pick up on the notion of placemaking and the notion of digital placemaking. So can you describe that for us, what placemaking is all about? You know, you read my mind. I actually wanted to talk about this. Yeah. So let me give you my favorite definition of placemaking, just kind of set a baseline. As we know it, it was basically this approach to a community-oriented urban planning and design started in the 70s, kind of connected to Jane Jacobs and connected to the resistance to the growth of automobiles and freeways and how cities were being gutted and affected, you know, neighborhoods and communities were being negatively affected by this future technology, the car that was promised to liberate us. And so there's a nonprofit was started around then by Fred Kent called Project for Public Spaces, nonprofit that practiced what it preached. So the evolution of placemaking has been very much defined by all of the different community-oriented collaborative projects that it has been involved in and the dialogue with all the other similar institutions in the world, in Europe and in Australia and Canada and South America and other places. Project for Public Spaces is kind of like the founding place where it happened. And they have many definitions of it themselves because it's a very organic thing. But the one that I like is this. Placemaking is a collaborative process by which we can shape our public realm in order to maximize shared value. More than just promoting better urban design, placemaking facilitates creative patterns of use, paying particular attention to the physical, cultural, and social identities that define a place and support its ongoing evolution. So my joke, in a sense, is that digital placemaking is the appropriate use of digital technology to authentically support and practice this ongoing evolutionary practice that's called placemaking. What digital placemaking isn't, because there's a lot of people that take that digital technological determinism and reductionism, and they think, oh, if I'm using technology in public space, it's digital placemaking. That is inauthentic to the history and the tradition and the politics and the origin of placemaking. So I always like it again to go back to, is it authentic? Is it connected to the actual movements and people and communities and the history and the origin of it? And is it in alignment with that? You know, so a lot of cities now you'll see instead of billboards or just signage in a bus shelter or neighborhood, you'll see these digital screens, these urban screens, as they're called. And they're basically the way I like to think of them from a digital placemaking perspective is that they're not digital placemaking. They are basically banner ads in your city that are like permanently installed banner ads that you can't install an ad blocker to remove because a private contract was made through a procurement process that usually went through no democratic oversight or public buy-in and support or vote on. Can I ask though, Daniel, so I get what you're saying, but what would a positive 
or functional example look like? So I've actually created a guideline that allows people to determine whether or not they're doing digital placemaking. Because I don't have the answer about what you should be doing in Albuquerque or any other city on the planet. What's important is what is the underlying approach that is a wiser, more functional approach. It really needs to be connected to the community's goals and needs. So I have a bunch of questions that I've put together, 14 of them actually. That's a way to kind of assess, you kind of like score, is your project digital placemaking? And I'll just mention some of them. One of the number one question is, you know, what problem is it actually solving? That digital solution, okay? That often itself isn't made clear. So question two, whose problem is it? Is it just people who are really wealthy and well-off? Is it only for the business community, et cetera? That alone then also unravels it a bit more. Question three would be what people or institutions might most seriously be harmed by that technological solution? Because I don't need to ask you what are the benefits because you're going to have all this PR and marketing telling you with this technology, you will get X, Y, and Z and everything will be happy. And so there's no lack of the claims on the benefits and they're not all wrong, but what is completely missing is the critical stuff. So any of us that are involved in the skepticism and critique of technological determinism and technological accelerationism are often met with this question of, well, you're just being a naysayer. Why don't you do something positive? You know, well, what do you really want? That presumes the same logic that they're pushing, which is that a single person or entity can tell everyone else in the world what is the answer. That's a reductionist approach that assumes, by definition, very limited amounts of information and oftentimes not the whole picture, but a reduced superficial understanding can have the answer for everybody else. So that's what I mean where I'm always wanting to kind of take a question like you asked and then get to the underlying dysfunction that we just are sort of swimming in, right? It's like we're swimming in these toxic waters and we don't even know how to necessarily get out of it. A lot of the work that I do is more about asking questions and encouraging dialogue rather than saying, forget this answer. Here's my solution, you know? It's really like that joke about science teaches us how to clone dinosaurs and humanities teaches us whether we should clone dinosaurs. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and this is the engineering logic, the engineering culture and everything like this that is part of STEM does not really focus on why. And the morality and the ethics and philosophy and the end goal. Or if it does, it's in a really reductionist manner. Like why? Because of profit. Why? Because I want my Lexus. Questions that I come at, like ones that I just mentioned, are coming from the practice in the field of media ecology. And that came from Marshall McLuhan. Um, he's kind of the father of media ecology, which is understanding mediums or media as environments. So if you think about any radio, TV, film, the internet, podcasting, etc., these all create different social relations and different mental states because it's like you're smelling, you're tasting, you're drinking, you're smoking different substances, and they create different realities, right? So it's like the difference between smoking pot and drinking a beer. Those create different vibes. And it's the same thing with different technologies, right? And so in this day and age, in 2022, I feel like that's a really fair comparison to make that a lot of people will understand even if they won't admit it, you know? <laughs> so let me give you some of the other questions that are more coming from the placemaking culture and the work that I've been doing. 
going back to this project that you have in mind in any city or that you dream of, or if you're an official working on a project right now, is it contextual to the place? Or is it a solution that was for somewhere else? And it's like, well, that looked cool and fancy. Let's have that in our local public park or street. Are local people involved in making and using it in the definition of it, right? In the RFP, if you will. Does it support a human scale relationship or interaction? That's a really important term in placemaking and in anthropology and sociology as well as this idea of human scale. Is it relatable at a human level? Does it increase the feeling of human connection or the connection with other animals, the birds, pets, dogs, or whatever, right? Does it increase that sense of connection or does it increase separation? So if you think about a gigantic church or a gigantic skyscraper, that is an anti-human scale relationship that by design is meant to impose and kind of install like fear or reverence about how tiny and unimportant you are compared to a bank or religion. And depending on how that's being used could be good or bad, but you can't escape from the fact that it's not human scale versus sitting around in a park with some movable seating and you can rearrange the seating to sit in a circle and watch your kids play or have a picnic. That's human scale. So the digital technology, is it increasing that sense of connection of how can I turn strangers in my neighborhood into friends or at least acquaintances that I respect? Or is the technology alienating and only exacerbating the way that I am objectifying other people? I live on a dead-end street. I've never lived on a dead-end street before. And I have been pleasantly surprised at how the dead end has changed the way that my little neighborhood feels. And it makes for a very communal kind of interaction. For me, it's been kind of life-changing and astonishing just to have that kind of connection with the people that I actually live next to. Does it increase face-to-face interaction? So in this case, because that dead end, which itself is a term that is defining that space from the technology, from the technology of the car's perspective, it's a dead end. But if you think about that from a human scale perspective, what would we call that instead? Cul-de-sac, uh, pod, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, right. There's, there could be something much more positive. Right. My own nomenclature is thinking about it from the perspective of the car, which is I can't keep driving. So, Daniel, could you tell us some examples of um, some of the projects you've worked on or seen where they do positively and constructively answer some of these questions of increasing face-to-face interaction or supporting human-scale relationships? So much of the work that placemaking is about in general is about basically doing capacity building. Because sometimes you encounter projects in cities where the community infrastructure is very high. There's lots of robust, actively engaged community groups. There are local elected officials and institutions that are responsive to their communities and constantly seeking their input and understanding the contexts, the ever-changing contexts of their places. But unfortunately, That is, I would say, more the exception to the rule, which is there's a lot of cities where people are very alienated. There's very little community organizing happening. There's very poor representative governance on the electoral or career institutional side. And everyone's just kind of all off in their silos, you know, their houses, they're all in their various castles and cathedrals, all isolated and separate. 
and that never leads to a good place, which is usually then there's a major problem and someone is like, let's try this placemaking approach. In the past 15 years, it's like, how can we use all of this fancy technology to actually maybe help this be better? So a lot of the work that I've done has been around using the digital technology for the community organizing. So that's a big component of it is this sort of social media weaving in good digital community organizing to marry that really well with the in-person community organizing. And you need both. That would also kind of inoculate your project from saying, let's replace all of this community organizing and all of this in-person stuff with technology, because that does not lead to a good place. So the questions apply to the process too, as well as to the product. Exactly. This is a big thing right now in technology itself, right? So in the world of software and design and technology, the smarter and wiser creators realize that we really need to focus on outcomes, not features. Because the feature always has an assumption of an outcome. This is the reason why so many pieces of technology whether it's a car or a building or an automated water faucet or an app just doesn't work or works really horribly because they built the feature, right? So the engineers were like, well, does it do X, Y, or Z? Yes. Did they test it? Did they test it with everybody? Did they continue to look at feedback to find out, is it actually generating the assumed result? So that goes back to question number one, what is the problem that this technology is a solution for and whose problem is it? and who might be harmed by this, and what new problems might be created. Let's say the technology does solve this problem and it doesn't create any additional harms, but it actually creates a new problem. You know, if you think about all of the video game technology, from a STEM perspective, there's a lot of people like, yeah, all this technology, iPad, apps, all this thing, brain games, how do we get young Einstein kids to be smarter? Because if they don't, they're going to fail. And there's this anxiety, there's this profound anxiety that the technological determinism has been created. But meanwhile, we have an epidemic of sedentary childhood obesity and diabetes. And was that ever examined in terms of the whole approach to the way that we center technology in our schooling and education system? You know, because I also worked in educational technology at Scholastic for several years before I got into placemaking and urban planning and architecture. So I got to see the logic and culture of educational technology in the for-profit space. Which has also pushed the same way and unquestioned the same way. I think increasingly people are willing to question it, but I know anecdotally it's much easier to accept people's pre-digested packages for your classroom than to try and come up with the same level of creative solutions as an individual. My approach is user-centered, customer-centered, human-centered design is one of the methods that is a wiser method. It's not the only solution. It is not enough on its own. So any of the people that are focusing on design thinking and human-centered design, and they think of that as the silver bullet, it's like, don't listen to the engineers, listen to the designers who are doing human-centered design. Well, you're just, again, replacing the same sort of determinism and solutionism, and it's just too narrow because they're not thinking about this humanities layer. What's the symbolic and cultural dimension of what does this mean? How is this going to affect people of different cultures and faiths? How will they receive it? All these other concerns are just never talked about because all of the oxygen in the room is being sucked up by these technological cheerleaders that think that's the only problem in the world or the only solution forward. Daniel, I can't even begin to tell you how much food for thought you've given us. 
thank you so much for talking with us about all of this today. Really appreciate it. Yeah, it's been a fun, enjoyable conversation. I really appreciate it. And if you would like more information about Daniel and his work, you can visit thewisecity.org. That's all one word, no spaces. Augmented Humanity is a program of the New Mexico Humanities Council produced in partnership with KUNM-FM. You can visit us online and find out more about our programs at nmhumanities.org. Our theme music comes courtesy James Whiten, and we've had production assistance from Tristan Klum.